0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started. It's 930. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that we can come together and worship you freely and in spirit and in truth. We pray that today you would be honored in our discussion as we continue our study through Daniel and be glorified in our worship today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing on in the book of Daniel in chapter 6. Last week we looked at uh, chapter 5 where we, up until that point, we had, you know, seen Daniel continuing to make himself, make a name for himself in the midst of a pagan people while in exile. Um, as we saw in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends gave us a model of what godly living was to look like among pagans, living in the world, not pulling ourselves out of the world, but serving God faithfully in it. And we see God also blessing the Daniel and his friends while they are serving a pagan ruler. You can see this all the way back uh, in chapter 2, where the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts because of the dream that he interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar. And then Daniel obviously standing up for his friends. So we see God working uh, in just very practical ways for Daniel as he is... Uh, being a witness for the Lord among the pagans. And we even see just in the last chapter that we looked at, chapter 5, we see Belshazzar um, giving Daniel also riches and a promotion because of the work that he did uh, for the king. So we, we do see these, uh, Daniel is, is doing pretty well where he's at. But it's not without trouble. We do see pushback with Daniel as he is standing up for the Lord Um, He's kind of an outsider, it seems, even though he uh, is among the pagans in doing the work that he is doing. And this is definitely a good thing we see biblically that earning wealth from our work is biblical. We see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and given him power to eat it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. And we know that Scripture teaches that all things come from God. Romans eleven thirty-six, and that every good and perfect gift comes from above, James one seventeen. So these are good gifts that God is giving and blessing Daniel in spite of the situation that he is in, and we'll see very shortly in chapter 6 that that, some of that came from Daniel's work ethic. We're going to talk a little bit about a Christian work ethic today. But Daniel continued to faithfully serve his employers, so to speak, uh, while in exile, and was a witness for the Lord in doing so. But that also did not come without difficulty, um, as we'll see here in chapter 6. So if you turn over to chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6, we'll we'll look at verses 1 and 3 first. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave, him over, uh, gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So we see this Darius coming on the scene in chapter 5. Um, this was really the end of the Babylonian Empire, at least at this time. Uh, we saw Belshazzar being killed the very night that Daniel gave him the interpretation of the writing on the wall. Um, this is not to be confused with the Darius of the book of Ezra, even though that king was also Persian, but they're two different men. Um, and this was the practice of the Medes and the Persians to divide their kingdoms up into different provinces. So the king was seeking to, you know, best efficiently or best manage his kingdom and giving Daniel consideration um, over the, one of those provinces. Um, why was Daniel considered uh, as, as a candidate for this position? It could have been that partly because of his position as a third ruler in the land, as we saw in chapter 5 when uh, Darius took over, he was immediately given that role after interpreting the writing. And then we see um, the Medes and Persians come on the scene. So it's likely that Daniel may have already been in a prominent role, so it just made sense for him to f- slide right into um, that role. But it does seem that uh, his reputation um, had either preceded him to some extent, and then as he's living out his work ethic before the king, he seemed to distinguish himself. Now, what about Christians serving in public service? Um, this, is, this keeps coming up time and time again, in Daniel but, um, you know, I guess the question asks, is it biblical for Christians to serve among pagan, uh, you know, pagan rulers or serve them? And the answer to that, we would say, is yes. If you look at our Confession of Faith, chapter 24, paragraph 2, it says, It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the management thereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth so that for that end they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. Now this statement historically is in direct conflict to the Anabaptists who taught that you had to, Christians were not supposed to serve in government, they could not serve in the army. um, So there were those among the Anabaptists who taught that. So this was in direct conflict to that. Particular Baptists, they weren't leaving the world but attempting to live in it biblically. We see government as from God So it can't be wrong to serve it as a Christian. It is a biblical institution, Romans 13, makes that very clear that they are God's servants for us to some extent. And we see other examples in scripture of godly men serving uh, in pagan, uh, serving pagan kings. We see Joseph in Genesis 41, 37 through 57. Joseph was sold into slavery by his wicked brothers. Then he rose to prominence as a faithful servant under Potiphar, even though he was falsely accused of um, sexual assault of his master's wife. But again, it seems the the dream interpretation seems to get people into into good standing. With Joseph, he interpreted uh, the chief cupbearer's dream and the chief cupbearer remembered him and then he was able to go to Pharaoh. And then he rose to prominence and became the second most powerful ruler in the land and he was able to serve that pagan king while remaining faithful to God, and there was blessing for Israel and for his family and for the people of Egypt and the surrounding areas. So he was able to preserve the land of Egypt from famine because of the position that he was put in, and God blessed him there. We look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah served under King Artaxerxes. You look at Nehemiah 2.1. He served as the king's uh, cupbearer, and this was a very dangerous job because the cupbearer's job was to ensure that there was no poison in the king's drink before it went to the king. So he would die first before the king would if the drink was poisoned. So he was basically pl- uh, playing Russian roulette every single day or every time the king wanted a drink. So it was uh, not exactly you know, as appealing as Daniel and his friend's jobs were, but still he served uh, the king very closely. And God would use Nehemiah through the Pers- or through uh, King Artaxerxes to rebuild the home of the Jews, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. So God's sovereign hand was at work in this godly public servant. And then a final example that we see is from the New Testament in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, with the centurion Cornelius. The text says that he was a godly man. He served the Lord, yet he was a pagan. He was a Gentile, yet he was a godly man. He believed in I believe it was because he was looking forward to what was to come in the types and shadows that were in the old covenant, and he was considered a godly man under that. And then he received the Holy Spirit after hearing the preaching of Peter. So you do see this this intermingling of Christians in public service, and Daniel is just another example in a long line of examples um, in the scriptures here. So let's go back to Daniel 6 and look at verses 3 through 5. Then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault, because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall, find no, uh, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So immediately the text starts to bring out the work ethic of Daniel, right? Bringing out the work ethic. There is an excellent spirit within him and this distinguished him from his peers so that the king saw this pretty quickly after taking over. Daniel was a distinguished member of his peers and that's why he sought to put him over, uh, give him this great responsibility. But of course these jealous wicked men rose to the occasion to try and stop Daniel because I think partly because of his work ethic uh, in in creating jealousy in them um, as he was rising above them. It could be too, maybe the men were cut to the heart because their work wasn't as good as Daniel's, maybe. They were convicted. And as we'll see, these men were conniving. They were deceptive. um, So these men were not men of integrity. And and, uh, typically, evil men will try to stop good men from doing what is right because it exposes them uh, for who they really are. But the text does go out of its way to point out Daniel's work ethic here. Um, and it says that he was faithful and he, he had an excellent spirit within him. So I think we'll park here for a second. I wanna talk about what does a biblical work ethic look like? And we see it exemplified here in Daniel, but what does that look like biblically speaking? Um, if you look at Ephesians chapter six, verses five through eight, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. It says, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, wh- whether he is slave or free. So this is toward the end of the book of Ephesians. Paul has already laid out gospel promises in Ephesians 1 and 2 that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus and that we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And then he applies those principles in practical Christian living, especially starting in chapter 4 where we see him talking about the unity of the people of God, that they're to be unified in Jesus Christ. And then in chapters five and six, we have more practical daily living. How are we supposed to apply these gospel truths to our lives? So here he talks about uh, slaves, especially. And I think even though it is specifically about slaves, I think the principle is about a work ethic in general. So we can apply this more broadly, I think, to employment. Um, But the point is we are to be faithful to Christ by doing well at our jobs. Paul does address masters later. Masters are to treat their slaves fairly, but slaves are to do the work that they're given uh, by their masters. There's this mutual relationship that's to happen here. Masters are not to lord over their slaves and slaves are to obey their masters. So Paul's point here wasn't to end slavery, but to establish biblical relationships between master and slave that would be godly in the midst of a less than ideal situation where one person is owning another. And eventually we would see these principles, biblical principles, would lead to the end of slavery later on in history. Uh, jump back to Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 14, verse 23. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. The the general principle given here is that we're not simply to talk about our work or about what we're going to do, but actually do it, right? If you have idle chatter, you say you're going to do something, um, especially work-related, and you don't do it, you're not going to get the reward that you would receive if you just did the work, right? And the Proverbs give us these general practical principles that are laying out biblical wisdom, right? We see, especially in the, the early, maybe, first six or seven chapters of Proverbs, you see this principle of wisdom being laid out. This is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So these practical applications of wisdom are an outflowing of what it means to fear God. So these aren't just, uh, you know, just short practical sayings for the sake of uh, Proverbs, but they are really an outworking of what it means to truly be wise in the eyes of God. So we're to work hard at what we do. And and generally speaking, if we work hard, we will be profitable. Laziness will lead, generally speaking, to poverty. So it's just very practical advice for us. And then look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage here. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. But we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we command you do this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, uh, now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eating their own bread but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. That's We heard that in uh, Galatians chapter six as well. It's the same principle here. Do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So Paul here is exhorting the Thessalonian church to be faithful to the calling that they have in Jesus Christ. So apparently there is a problem with people who were being idle in the church. They were busybodies. They weren't minding their own business. They weren't taking care of their families. They were just uh, nosing around in the church instead of working. And that tends to be the case when you have idle hands, right? You try to fill it with something else, and it tends to be something that is sinful and something that is not good. Um, So work is a way that uh, not only for us to provide for ourselves and our families, but it also keeps us out of trouble right? If we're working, it's it's hard to get ourselves into sinful practices if we're busy with, with other things. So Paul gives himself as an example here. He, as an apostle, had every right to get his food from the church for free. He says he has the right to demand food from them, right? He has the right to do that. We even see this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says that uh, not to uh, muzzle an ox as he treads the grain. The the minister of the gospel should expect to receive something in return for his work, yet he laid that right aside for the sake of the gospel in this case. So Paul is doing this to teach the Thessalonians a lesson in this particular passage. He wants them to see what a biblical work ethic looks like. He loved this church and wanted to give this example to them, but he gives some hard advice. If you don't work, you don't eat. In other words, your daily food should come from work, otherwise you don't get to eat. And this, I think, shows the necessity of faithful work in our daily lives. Um, our very livelihood, our ability to survive comes from our work. Um, and this is all the more important to take, work hard to take care of ourselves and our families. We see in 1 Timothy 5.8 that to not provide for one's family, especially those um, in our own household, is to be worse than an infidel or worse than the pagans. And this is in the context of instructions for the church, right? Paul is giving instructions for how widows are to be taken care of. Um, Were those widows, uh, did those widows have families? If they had families, that should not be the burden of the church to take care of them. It should be their families that should take care of those widows. So I think there's very practical instructions here. Um, What this meant, though, is that the family that cared for their widow had to work to be able to provide for their family. Uh, uh, Money, food, etc., didn't come naturally. It doesn't just show up. They had to earn it. So implicit in this command to care for family is the command to work, and to not to work is to make you worse than a pagan. So very strong words as it relates to work ethic in the scriptures. Now, how can this apply to us uh, today? How do these passages apply to us? We're to work to God's glory. We're to work to God's glory wherever we are. We should have, Christians should have strong work ethics, at the very least doing what we are supposed to be doing, fulfilling our duties as best we can. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll be perfect out of work, nor does it mean that we have to um, be driven to start our own companies. that can be considered hardworking. I think that's something that you see in the world, that this idea of hustling, right, constantly making money and and starting companies or whatever the case might be, Uh, is something that the world seems to push. You have to be working all the time. I don't think that's biblical either. You can still be hardworking where where God has you and the duties that God has placed on you. The world's understanding of success is really having as much money and possessions and status as possible. Um, But as Christians, that should not be our desire. We're to be faithful wherever God have us. So the question is, are we faithful with the job God has given us? Do we desire to do our best in our work? Or are we the ones who are constantly falling behind on our work that our boss has to constantly chide because we aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing with our duties? Christians should be the ones who are following through on their duties. Um, and, And the pagans should not be outdoing us in that respect. We should be faithful to our work. Do we commit time theft by using our employer's time for other things we shouldn't be? that's something we have to constantly be asking ourselves. Do we execute our tasks faithfully as Scripture commands us to do and as exemplified in Daniel? Daniel was faithful and stood out among the rest of his peers in his work he did, and this even led to potential promotion. And think, too, what this would have done for the Jews as a whole. Daniel effectively represented his people before the king in the prominence of his position as Christians, we can make a parallel to us. As Christians, don't we represent our brothers and sisters in Christ when we're before the fallen world? Yes, we do represent Christ, and we are to live to his glory above all things. It is the Lord Christ we serve, but our actions can bring reproach to not only the name of Christ, but also make other brothers and sisters look bad by our laziness and our foolish actions. Someone might you know, at work, might think that we're—they know we're—we claim to be a Christian, but then we are continuously neglecting our duties, and then they picture Christians in that light. Oh, you're one of those Christians, okay? With that, in broad brushing, they shouldn't do that, but it can lead to that because um, of our actions. So we have—we have to be really careful um, as we're—we're we're living out these things before our fallen world. The world may blow off our witnessing entirely. If we try to witness to the pagan world or share the gospel with fallen man while we're not living out the truth that we claim to be teaching them, um, they're not going to listen to us, likely. They're not going to listen to us. It can be a hindrance to the gospel. We are to show the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. One of the marks of a Christian is faithfulness, and that applies not only to our marriages, to our families, but also to our work. Are we faithful in the work that God has given us? Are we diligent at it? Do we show up to work on time? Are we doing the duties that we're supposed to be consistently? Are we respecting our employers? Daniel was so faithful in his work that his enemies could find nothing which would hold against him as it related to to the law of the land. They end up having to trick the king into making a phony law to trip him up. Daniel was so above reproach in his work that they could find nothing according to their laws and their standards to uh, to find him. They had to rig the system against him in order to, uh, to finally trap him. We should seek to be above reproach in our work. The world speaking well of us in some sense is not necessarily a bad thing. We should be liked and respected for the righteousness we perform in front of pagans, giving glory to God above all. It is a natural consequence for doing what is right in God's eyes. Now that doesn't mean we follow in the wicked ways of the world. Doesn't mean we embrace their mindsets. But it, there is a practical sense where the world, in common grace, does appreciate it when we do things that are right and things that are good. If you look at Proverbs three one through four, it says, "My son, do not forget my law." But let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will they will add to you let not mercy and truth forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man so as we're living in a way that is pleasing to God in a way that is according to biblical wisdom it is pleasing to God, but it also does gain favor with man. Man sees those things and they will, um, they will appreciate that in a, in a very practical sense. We even see this with our Lord, Luke 2.52, that as he grew according to his human nature, he grew in favor with both God and man. As his character grew, he was respected among men and also loved by his father. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6, verses 6 through 9. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So now we start to see the scheming of Daniel's enemies. Daniel's living a godly life before them. He's been picked as a possible candidate for this very high position, and now his enemies want to bring him him down. And they go to the king and propose this law that obviously would only apply to Daniel and maybe the Jews. Um, It was clearly meant to trap uh, Daniel. Uh, And they came up with this way so that they could say, oh, look, according to our law, you're not obeying our law. You're not doing what we said to do. So we're going to, and and ultimately the punishment would have been death. It was capital punishment. Their scheming is brought out even more in how they address the king. They say, King Darius lived forever. They're very disingenuous. They're trying to manipulate the king to do what they want. And Daniel would use the similar declaration later on in the chapter, but these men did not have the best interests of the king at heart. They were trying to use this situation and the king's power for their own uh, devious purposes. So very, they were being very disingenuous. And they were also lying to the king by leaving out key information of who this law was for, right? If the king had known that this was about Daniel and maybe the Jews, I don't think, based on what we see later in the chapter, I don't think Daniel would have, or the king would have signed this law because uh, he liked Daniel. But they left out some key information so that the king would sign this. So it was really a, an Omission of key information and the pride of the king, I think, too. I mean, our natu- his natural pride, as probably as the king, would have been sure, why don't you just worship me? Why wouldn't I want you to worship me? I'm the king, I'm the most powerful person. Why wouldn't you want me to do that? And not thinking through the consequences of his actions and not thinking through um, that this would affect him internally as it relates to his own kingdom and who would be involved in it. It seems his pride had blinded him. Proverbs 19 verse 20, which tells us to seek wise counsel, was clearly not in play here, and the king would pay for that. He didn't seek wise counsel. He just took whatever was given to him by his rulers without examining it closely and maybe getting a second opinion to make sure that he was uh, doing something that was wise. The king let his pride get in the way. Now we look at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was the custom since early days. Daniel probably knew about this decree pretty early on, given his position. And it's interesting, too, you know, talking about getting a second opinion. The king didn't even consult Daniel on this, even though he knew that Daniel was in a high position and distinguished himself. He apparently didn't consult him on this at all. You would think that someone as trusted as Daniel would have had this run by him first by the king. And I think, again, this shows the king's pride and the manipulation that was at play by Daniel's enemies. But you do see here that Daniel did not falter even in the midst of this threat. He continued doing what he knew to be right, which is to worship God, pray to God. And Daniel didn't get himself in line knowing that the decree was in play. He didn't go, oh, I, you know, I haven't prayed in six months, but you know, I better get myself in line now that, the, you know, now that this decree is in place. No, it says that this was his custom since early days. This was Daniel's way of life. He was just a praying man. He worshiped God. And this seemed to be well known because the enemies um, of Daniel knew that he uh, was a godly man. But he just continued doing what he was doing, praying to God. He was faithful to God consistently without being phased by the decree of death that was upon him. However, I think we do have to be careful not to assume that Daniel uh, didn't have any second thoughts or, or wasn't afraid. Daniel was a, a man, right? Daniel was a man. Um, it, I think the same thing could be with another biblical character like Abraham, who was asked to sacrifice his son. You know, Dan- I'm sure Abraham was, uh, you know, not second guessing himself or questioning God's Ask. I mean, you're asking me to go kill my son, the son that you promised to 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 give me and to bring my offspring through. Oh, you know, I, I'm sure he was. Uh, there were question marks in his mind, and maybe that he was uh, very terrified and 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 saddened by that. Um, you know, even our Lord, according to his human nature, was stricken by the horror of suffering on the cross and sweat drops of blood. But Daniel was a man, and he probably was scared, maybe even angry at the decree being. Past, But nonetheless, in each of the examples, each of these men obeyed God, even though they were asked to do something difficult. And I think it's fair to ask how we would respond in a situation like this. You know, we certainly in this country don't face the kind of persecution that we see in the early church, like in Hebrews 11 or in Acts. Um, but we do see that Christians who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution from 2 Timothy chapter 3. There will be some measure of persecution if we are Christians. There will be a cost to following Jesus Christ, regardless of uh, the degrees that it comes in. Especially since we do identify with our Lord, who himself was killed and who himself was persecuted. We are not better than our masters. We will suffer in some way, shape, or form for the name of Christ. But in any given situation of persecution, would we stand? And I think the honest answer to that question is we don't know. We don't know. In our own strength, we will fail. In our own strength, we will fall. You know, if, if you know, we should never assume that, that we would stand. We should never make that assumption because we are weak, frail creatures in our own strength if someone comes and threatens my family because I'm a Christian or gives me an ultimatum, deny Christ or I will hurt your family, that would not be an easy choice. That would not be an easy choice. Our flesh is weak. We love our comfy lives, and there's no question that that thought would cross our minds to deny the Lord for the easy way out. In our flesh, we would fall. We are to however, the scriptures do say that we are to love our families less than our Lord. We are to love Him above everything. We should remind ourselves of that often. Do we really believe in our Lord? Or is our church life and Bible reading merely going through the motions? Or are those things sinking in so that when these difficult times come that we can withstand with Scripture and the, the Spirit's help in helping us to stand and to know what to say before wicked men. These things should seep into us so that we really believe them and apply them to our lives. So this means that the solution to persevering under persecution is not our own strength, because in our own strength, we will fail. If we rely on our flesh, we have no hope. Our only hope is our Lord. If we're in Christ, he will keep us from ultimately falling away. Even if we stumble, he will keep us. And that is where our hope and our rest is found in Jesus Christ and his spirit will give us strength to give us those things to say in these times of trouble. Let's look at verse 11 of Daniel 6. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God, and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, the thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So it didn't take long for Daniel's enemies to, um, you know, to to take advantage of this situation. They were spying out his personal life and it's important to emphasize that Daniel's personal life that we're talking about here. Daniel wasn't taking advantage of the king by using the king's time for his long prayer sessions. This was something that he did outside of work hours, so to speak. But these men still uh, spied on him. They apparently followed him and and ensured that he was caught in the act, um, even though he was still being faithful in his work. And as soon as they found Daniel doing this, they went to the king, and they reminded the king of the law's existence. And the way they brought it up is interesting, too, so they don't say that we put this law in place, they say you king, you sign this law into place. So they're putting all of the responsibility on the king and saying, you sign this, it doesn't change, you know, as if they had nothing to do with it, right? Now, these men are, are devious liars and, and they're doing everything they can to stop Daniel. Looking at verse 13, so they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians excuse me, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. You can even see the derogatory language being used here of Daniel, right? Oh, no, He's one of those captives of Judah. He's not one of us, right? He doesn't show regard for you. One of, those, one of those slaves does not show any regard for you, O king. We need to deal with him. And then again, they remind the king of the law. This law does not change. This law does not change. You have to follow through with this, and you're the one who signed it. And the king's reaction is actually interesting, too. He doesn't say, it doesn't say that the king blamed Daniel's enemies, but that he was displeased with himself. He realized that he had done something foolish and that he had been duped. He should have known better than to take the advice of these men. He should have known better. He knew he was tricked at that point, that he had been tricked because one of his favorite servants, Daniel, was trapped in this law that he enacted. So he's probably kicking himself very hard because he listened to the counsel of wicked men. Looking at verses 16 through 23, almost done with the chapter here, 16 through 23. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he believed in his God. Now again, this is the the moment of truth for Daniel. He's now praying to God three times a day, he's violated this this phony law, and now he's being brought to his apparent death. And again, Daniel being a man, he was likely terrified of the fate that would await him. To be torn apart while living by these huge beasts had to have caused Daniel to second-guess himself, at least to some extent. But again, he remained faithful. He knew that God could deliver him, but he did not have a guarantee of that, even though God had a track record of uh, you know, saving Daniel and his friends in the past, Daniel could not assume that that would happen. And it also seemed that the king attempted to make himself feel better, right, by th- when he threw him into the lion and said, well, your God will save you. You know, you'll be okay. Calm down. You know, it's not a big deal. Your God will take care of you, right? Um, as if the, you know, the king didn't really have anything to do with this or he'd be okay. The king didn't know that. And as we see at that night, the king didn't sleep at all, he didn't sleep at all. And that's something that sin can do to us. It can have a physical effect upon you. A, a bad conscience, an unresolved conscience can create all kinds of problems. We see this like in Psalm thirty-two, three, where sin clearly has physical effects upon um, a person's uh, being. It can cause such a ruckus in our consciences that sleep can be taken away. We don't want to take care of ourselves or eat. And I think that's partly what we see here with the king, besides the anxiety of Daniel being ripped apart, an innocent man being ripped apart, um, I think it was a guilty conscience as well that he had put Daniel in the situation by his own foolishness. Now, who is this angel? Um, John Gill says that this was the same one who showed up in the fiery furnace earlier in the book, um, which would have been Christ in human form, as Gill says. Um, Whether or not this is the case, it may not be clear, but it's likely regardless, God used his messenger to stop the mouth of the lions. So this is God's providence in uh, keeping Daniel from death. It's also interesting to note that there's a similarity between Daniel going into this, uh, into this den and a stone being rolled over it, and Christ's death and resurrection. We do know from John chapter 5 verse 39 that the Old Testament bears witness to Christ. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that this could be some kind of picture of Christ's burial and subsequent resurrection. Um, The language is very oddly specific here uh, in Daniel, and there's suspicious parallels with the burial of Christ. We see Christ being unjustly condemned by wicked men who hate him because he is righteous, killed, and and then buried, then rises from the dead. In the parallel, we see Daniel is unjustly condemned by wicked men who hate him because of his upright character. He is thrown into the den of lions, which for all intents and purposes is sure death and then is brought out unharmed. So I, I think you could see, you could make a parallel here between uh, Daniel's situation and a, and a foreshadowing of Christ. Um, another thing to note here is the respect that Daniel has for the king. Daniel doesn't disrespect the king because the king put him in the situation. He he addresses the king according to his title. He says, O king, live forever. And he does so in a genuine, respectful way. So Daniel took kindness to the king, even though the king had unjustly condemned him. And then we look at the final verses here, verses 24 through 28. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. And he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And it seems here at the end that this king seemed to trust in the true God. He seemed to trust in the true God. Uh, Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who didn't trust until much later, it took him a long time to come to that point. It seems that pretty quickly uh, Darius believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, in Jacob. And we do see justice being brought upon these wicked men. And it wasn't just the men, it was their wives and their children as well were thrown in there. These men truly represented their families. You know, as went the father, so went the rest of the family, right? There was almost like a covenantal representation there. So they were thrown into the lion's den as well. But we see things going well for Daniel, uh, at least for a time after this, in it says that he prospered. God continued to bless him, again, because of the faithfulness that uh, he showed to God. God does honor those who honor him in some way, shape, or form. And I think that's all we have for today, um, So we'll go ahead and close with a word of prayer and then head into worship. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we pray that this would settle in our minds and that we would be ready to come to your word as as Pastor Steve brings us the preaching from your word, Lord, and that we would listen and apply these things to our hearts, Lord, that we would walk away here refreshed, renewed, repentant people, Father, who would live out this week in obedience to you, and that we would take of the table with pure hearts, that we would lay aside any sins that we have in our hearts, Lord, and that we would obey and come to the table um, after examining ourselves. We pray that Our worship today would be pleasing to you in all things, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.